0: many times and that we feel in our hearts that we have the great privilege of having eyes opened to the glory of Christ, to want to get up in the morning and come and to be with your people, to gather with the redeemed, with other Christians, to offer you our praise and our worship. The fruit of the lips of our salvation is to give you glory, is to honor you. And so we delight to do that together, but one of the greatest fruits as well is that we love to hear you speak to us in your word, and we love to do so in the assembly of your people. And so we ask now as we gather and as we prepare our hearts to hear the testimony of your saving grace in the life of James Stevens this morning, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truthfulness and the glory ...of Christ in your word and, and this morning through your message to the church at Sardis. So we ask you to be our teacher. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, will go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. As we are going to briefly move on to the message to, to the next church in the list of seven churches in Revelation... Uh, this morning, we'll be looking at the church of Sardis, the church of Sardis. Uh, I first want to acknowledge, however, before we begin, just how thankful I am for Tim and his ministry, and I, I know I've, I've heard of others, how blessed they were, and how timely it was, the message of God's providence in the life of Joseph uh, to them, uh, that message was, and so thank you, Tim, for your faithfulness. I'm so sorry I wasn't here to, to hear it this time uh, with everyone else. But we come now again to the message of Christ to the seven churches. And as I noted, we will be looking this morning, beginning our look at the church of Sardis. And the the title of this uh, message, which we'll try to finish up next week, introduce this morning and finish up next week, is The Message of Christ to Sardis The Church of the Living Dead. The Church of the Living Dead. At the great rebuke of Christ to this church, that we again we'll consider more next week, is that they are a church that had a name, that they were alive, but in fact they were dead. They were dead spiritually. And we come then to a church that, like Laodicea, reflects the church more than the others of our own culture in America. And this is a significant point to note right at the beginning because it is in fact that these two churches that are the only two churches that do not who do not receive a commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ but only censure and only rebuke only a call to repentance. And so it is a very serious situation that we find the church of Sardis and the church of Laodicea in even more so than the others. The only two churches, as you'll remember, that do receive no rebuke on the opposite end of that spectrum are the Church of Smyrna and the Church of Philadelphia. But this morning we come to the Church of Sardis, the Church of Sardis, in whom Christ has very significant and profound words of rebuke. So we would do well to pay attention. Let's begin by reading uh, the message, which is in Revelation chapter 3. I'm sorry, I said chapter 2. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds and that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, as with each of these churches... In order to understand and get a better sense of the message of Christ to this local congregation, it's important to understand the context of the church. And really as much as any, or probably in some ways more than any, the context of the situation at the church of Sardis and her particular history lends itself to the warning that Christ will give, a better understanding of the warning that Christ will give. But I want to begin by just giving a a general backdrop or context, and that is the first point, the context of the church. Uh, Begin by giving a general context of the city of Sardis in which this church existed. Well, let's begin with a very broad overview, really not much more than a bullet point of the history of the church of Sardis. And we can go ahead and have up, if you would, the map so we can see where it sits in relation uh, to these other churches. We'll refer to it in a moment. Regarding the history of Sardis, it is said to be one of the oldest and most storied cities of all of Asia Minor. Uh, It was possibly established likely in about 1200 BC and was a part of a kingdom known as the Lydian Kingdom. And so it was a very old city, and Sardis functioned as the capital of that kingdom of Lydia. However, it came to prominence prim- primarily in the 7th century under a leader named Gidges. I hope I pronounced that right. And it reached its pink under his son, Cressus. And it was originally built atop a mountaintop, I'll show you some pictures in a a bit, that was was at a peak and surrounded on three sides, accessible through one side, surrounded on three sides by these steep cliffs at the time approximately 1,500 feet tall. So it was a significant city, and it was a significant city that had a prime location that lent itself to prominence as a military outpost, and as we'll note a bit later, also with trade in in the area. As the city was built in this rather confined area on the top of this mountain called Mount Tumulus. Uh, It eventually as it grew and grew and grew and particularly by the 7th century became too large for that uh, place on the mountaintop and it extended itself to a second city down in the valley below and interestingly this is reflected in the fact that the name is a plural noun and it's referring to both of those cities actually again interestingly Athens is the same way it's actually a plural noun uh, that we refer to as Athens. Its history as a significant city and military outpost meant that it was marked by frequent wars. Uh, The most significant of these uh, came in 549 B.C. It was captured by the Persian king Cyrus. We'll refer to that later. And then in 197 B.C. approximately by the Greek ruler Antiochus. And then in 133 B.C. it came under Roman rule, which is where we find the city in Christ's address in Revelation chapter 3. In AD 17, it was destroyed by an earthquake, but because of its wealth and its significance, it was given special favor by Emperor Tiberius, and it was granted a large sum of money to rebuild and exemption from taxes for five years. And so rapid was its growth, and so fortuitous was its situation, that by the year 26 AD, one ancient writer named Strabo referred to the city once again as a great city. It quickly then had rebuilt and come to a place of wealth and a place of particular prominence. So it was a significant city. It was a significant city that was marked by wealth and was marked by ease. But by the time we come to it in the first century, or really the latter part of the first century, it was a city though it had those attributes that largely lived in its glory in the past. Its past glory. It was no longer really as much of a significant military outpost, although it was still a city of much wealth. In fact, one writer describes it this way In the Roman period, it was almost like a city of the past, a relic of the period of barbaric warfare, which lived rather on its ancient prestige than on its suitability to present conditions. So in other words, it was a city that had a great name, it had some present wealth, but its significance was really more in its history, the name that it held on to, not what it actually possessed in the present. But as I alluded to, what was really crucial to this city and its prominence and its history and its self-consciousness was its geography, was its geography. And we can go ahead and put up uh, some of those other pictures. Now, Sardis sits, now the map isn't up there, but it sits about 30 miles southwest of Thyatira and about 50 miles from the city of Ephesus. And we'll mention this next week, but there's a lot of parallels in the message of Christ to Sardis as to, uh, in his message to Ephesus. But it sat about 30 miles of the last church, Chrysodes, the Thyatira. And as I noted, it was built atop this mountain, the Mount Tomulus. Uh, and maybe you could put up another picture as well, so you could get a sense of it, and it's So there it is. So that I'll mention later is uh, a temple built to uh, Sybil, also known as Artemis, and there's Mount Tumulus in the back, in the background. So you can see it was high up. It was surrounded by these high cliffs, and it was really only accessible in one direction by these rather steep uh, land bridges, essentially that served as a function of connecting Mount Tumulus to the valleys below. So it was a place that was easily protected. It was easily protected from attacks, and so therefore, again, it was a significant military outpost. And it became a significant point between the conflicts that existed between Europe and Asia. So really, as Sardis went, so went the battle, as it were. And it was seen as the significant point of defense for the kingdom of Lydia uh, in the past in terms of its history. And so as it was said often by some older writers that as Sardis goes, so goes the kingdom. And so there it was, this place high atop a hill protected by its natural geography and a place that was significant not only in the way that it could be defended militarily but also in the place that it held in terms of trade of that area. And so regarding trade... It was a key point of travel from the east, and by the Roman period, it was the center of five conjoining major roads. And so what that meant is that all of the travel and commerce really went in that area, went through this uh, city of Sardis. And that, of course, made it a place where great wealth came and passed through uh, this place. It was also an area rich agriculturally, and together with uh, being a center of travel, it meant that a great deal of prosperity existed among the people there and in that region. As a matter of fact, one old writer says that there reports that there used to be a river that ran right through the city, the lower city, of course, uh, that was a gold-bearing river that bore gold dust. Now, that's conjectural, it's not, can't be absolutely certain that that was uh, the case, but this is what the older writer Herodotus uh, said, the stream which comes down from Mount Tumulus and which brings Sardis a quantity of gold dust runs directly through the marketplace. Well, there's no river there now and there's no gold there now, so we can only assume that that was true. However, it is uh, affirmed that gold and silver coins were first minted in Sardis, and so that would lean some credit, uh, credibility to the account. And it's also noted that in excavations of uh, burial grounds near there, that there were large quantities of jewelry and other valuable items. And so it's very possible. It was also the place where it said that dye-wooling was perfected. So you put all of these things together and it was a place that was agriculturally rich. It has a large history of being a significant city in that area. It was a well-defended city. It was a city that was prime for flourishing and all of the blessings of nature and of the natural provisions to be a place that one would want to live and a place where one could live quite comfortably. However, most significantly was its natural defenses, And it's history as an impregnable impregnable military outpost. And it's really this position that that plays a key role in both Christ's address and sort of the self-consciousness of the city uh, itself. One noted this. It's virtually impregnable Acropolis constructed on a side of the mountain, consisted of perpendicular rock walls, easily eroded, rising on three sides, 1,500 feet uh, above the valley. I think it's, yeah, okay, so you can see it there. So you can see where it was approachable here. There was really a series of hills. It was the highest hill and it was uh, accessible, again, to this landmass that kind of made its way up and it was very steep. So if you were to try to attack it, it's said that even a child could defend the city. ...because of the steep walls and because of how arduous the journey would have been... ...especially for an army to come up even to the point where it was accessible. So it was impregnable and it was thought to be impregnable. And that gave to the people then a sense of security and a sense of safety. And this becomes significant, particularly in its history. As the story goes, at the height of its power and its, and its glory in the ancient kingdom of Lydia Cressus, the king of, uh, of uh, Sardis at the time feeling a sense of his own power and feeling a sense of his own oats, decided to form a military coup or attack against the kingdom of Persia. And so he left the city of Sardis, went with his band of soldiers and made an attack against King Cyrus, the king of Persia at the time. Well, he was roundly defeated by the king. And so Cressus retreated and he retreated back to this military garrison at the top of Mount Tomalus and While he was there, Cyrus had made a pursuit and had laid the city under siege. But feeling safe and secure because of the position of Sardis, uh, Cressus really didn't pay much attention to that. And nor did he pay much attention to the need to defend the city against Cyrus. And that proved to lead to uh, defeat that became known throughout the ancient world. Uh, This defeat and this situation is recorded again by the ancient historian Herodias. And let me just go ahead and read the account to you. Actually, it's up there. I think we have, have it up there. Okay, and here it is. And so I'll just read to you the account. It says, Now the taking of Sardis came about as follows... When the 14th day came after Cressus began to be besieged, Cyrus made proclamation to his army, sending horsemen round to the several parts of it, that he would give gifts to the man who should first scale the wall. So that is those high cliffs on one side. After this, the army made an attempt, and when it failed, then after all the rest had ceased from the attack, a certain Mardian, whose name was Hiroedius, made an attempt to approach on that side of the citadel when no guard had been set, for they had no fear that it would ever be taken from that side, seeing that here the citadel is precipitous and, and unassailable. In other words, it was safe. So then, this Mardian hierides. having seen on the day before how one of the Lydians had descended on that side of the citadel to recover his helmet, which had rolled down from above, and had picked it up, took thought and cast the matter about in his own mind. Then he himself ascended first, and after him came up others of the Persians. And many having thus made approach, Sardis finally was finally taken, and the whole city was given up to plunder. So summarized is this. They go to make the siege. They see no way to get up there. One day, so Cyrus, however, says to motivate them, says, I'll give a great reward to the one who can go in and attack the city. So one of the soldiers just happens one day to be out there on the side of those cliffs, sees a soldier drop his helmet, and then go down and retrieve it, and goes, Aha! I see a way up. And so, in fact, he did, and he took some men with him and went up. And in the night, while Cressus was sleeping, he overcame the garrison that was left largely, basically, unattended and undefended. And so, this defeat then became known throughout the ancient world, and it became a proverb. And this was uh, the proverb, that the capturing Sardis was meant, to, uh, was meant to communicate those who can achieve the impossible. If you wanted to say, give a a phrase that meant to achieve the impossible, it was to say that it was like capturing Sardis. And so amazingly, however, even after this defeat, the city was once again restored to a place of prominence. It again fell into a false sense of purity that made it proud and negligent, and its second fall was just like the first. Essentially, it had a garrison, a military place of defense atop this hill, but being very secure in it, they left it largely undefended. Defended. And the second time it was taken, it was by Antiochus III, or Antiochus the Great, who again, in the same manner, found a way of up those high cliffs and so took a small band of men and they ascended the cliff and then overtook the city largely essentially unresisted and so the history of Sardis itself is a warning against overconfidence and a false sense of security security that leads to negligence and so that was a part of the historical lore a part of the self-consciousness of the people and the city that we'll see plays an important role in Christ's message to the church just to give, fill out that picture, politically, though it was a significant city in wealth, it wasn't such a significant city politically. It tried to be, and as it made two applications that they could build a temple to the worship of Caesar. And so they made an application that they would be given permission. It was denied, and if you'll remember, it was denied because the permission was granted to Smyrna. And so Smyrna was a central location of the imperial cult of Caesar and became the source of persecution to the church there. But at uh, Sardis, it wasn't granted. It wasn't a center of imperial worship, although there was certainly uh, a friendly attitude towards Caesar and towards Rome. But not being a place of uh, great cult worship of Caesar, there wasn't a lot of persecution there. And so we don't have any word really of the church here suffering any of the political persecution that some of the other churches knew at this time. Religiously, it was a typical city at that time. And although there's no mention of it in this letter, there was a large Jewish congregation there. Uh, and that becomes evident primarily because by early in the 3rd century, there's an extremely large synagogue that was discovered. One described it as being uh, having the dimensions uh, almost equal to a football field. But primarily... And most significantly, it was a center of worship for a patron deity. That means they had many deities there, but the one patron deity, the the deity most uh, attributed or connected to that city, was one called Sybil, and it's also known as Artemis. And so that temple that you saw at the bottom was actually a temple that was dedicated to Artemis. And so it was a place of worship of that deity. This worship was marked, as one described it, by wild, frenzy, frenzied, and hysterical uh, activity. And so, like most of them, basically it was worship marked by debauchery. But the most significant thing about this particular deity is that there was a particular emphasis on the ability to bring life out of death. To bring life out of death. Uh, One said it in this way, summarized it. Pagan religions throughout the area attributed healing power to their deities. But in Sardis, special emphasis focused on the power to restore life from the dead. So a part of their religious consciousness, a part of their religious idea, just at the culture at large, even in the pagan culture at large, was this idea of life out of death. Life out of death. In fact, from a pagan perspective, this was reinforced by the presence of hot springs... ...that were located about two miles from the lower city in front of the Mount Tumulus. And the hot springs on the plain, they thought, were a manifestation... ...and I quote, of the divine subterranean power, the god of the underworld. So they saw great significance there. Culturally, because of its wealth and absence of conflict... It maintained this sense of affluence and security, a sense of ease and safety. And therefore, it had a reputation for extravagant luxury, loose living, and superficiality. One described it this way and said, Sardis had become a byword for slack and effeminate living. In other words, it was a place where you could just go and do whatever you wanted to do. It was a place of pleasure. It was a place of wealth. It was a place of security. It was a place where one could go and indulge in whatever they desired to indulge in. And it is in that city that the church found itself. Now interestingly, there's no mention of the establishment of the church in the New Testament. Likely, it was Christians from Ephesus where there is record of a church being established who came down and brought the gospel uh, to the the place of Sardis. But either way, there was a a church there and the gospel did uh, come to it. But the most significant thing about this church here is that it reflected its culture in all of the bad ways. The church that Christ is going to address, he wants to wake up from its slumber. And it appears to have had a false sense of peace and security that came from their wealth. And essentially, they lived an unthreatened life. They had become a people who were known by the name of Christ and by the name of Christian. But as Christ will say, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. So the wealth and the prominence and the prestige of Sardis made the church a place ripe for false conversion and a false sense of spiritual security. And it is from that that we can see how the message of Sardis parallels the situation that we find ourselves in today. And while we'll look at this in more detail uh, next week and maybe in the next couple of weeks, I would want to make some just brief observations here by way of introduction. And that is namely this, that the church... Though it may have a name of belonging to Christ, often can find itself without that spiritual reality of Christ. And such was the church at Sardis, and such is the church for many throughout the ages, and particularly in our day. A parallel will be could easily be those who judge church and its success and its blessing by, in terms of numbers, budget, and activity, rather than a deepening love for Christ, rather than a manifestation of the reality of obedient love for Christ in their life. And so in that sense, then, the history of Sardis and the spiritual condition of the church brings us this important observation, and this is what we're going to make before we go to baptism. And that's this. Ease and prosperity make for a spiritually dangerous situation. One of the greatest threats to us as a nation, one of the greatest threats to us as individual peoples and the church is a lack of conflict. Ease, wealth, and abundance. Let's just briefly consider this. And I am going to go through this briefly. This is certainly true in the hearts of unbelievers. Listen to some of the ways that Scripture talks about this. And I'm just going to read these different texts. Psalm 73, 12 says this. Well, actually, beginning in verse... 10, therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know and is their knowledge with the most high? Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. Listen, always at ease, they have increased in wealth. And because they have increased in wealth, he said previously that they mock and wickedly speak of oppression and they speak from on high and their mouth is against the heaven and their tongue parades through the earth. Their wealth, their abundance, their sense of safety, their sense of ease gave them a sense of personal strength and security that made them actively speak against and even blaspheme God's people. Listen to the way that he says this in Psalm 10 as we just take this idea of the danger of abundance. Verse 1, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Listen to the description of those who bring the trouble. In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boast of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him, all his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits on the lurking places and the villages and the hiding places. He kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He looks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws them out of his net. He goes on and says... He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Listen to the language of unbelieving nations who follow the same line of thinking. In Jeremiah chapter 48, in a message to Moab, God says this. Jeremiah 48 verse 7 and 11. He says in verse 7, For because of your trust in your own achievements and treasures, even you yourself will be captured and Chemish will go off into exile and together with his priests and his princes. He says later in verse 11, Moab has been at ease since its youth. He has been undisturbed like wine on its dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor and his aroma is not changed. In other words, Moab has experienced no affliction. Everything has been easy. They have not been brought to the end of themselves, and therefore their flavor is not changed. In other words, they have maintained their pride and their arrogance and all of their ways. Listen to Jeremiah 49, verse 31. He says this. He says, Arise, go up against a nation, again, which is at ease, which lives securely, declares the Lord. It it has no gates or bars. They dwell alone. In other words, they see no reason to defend themselves. They're secure in their safety. They have no reason to worry about invading marauders or nations because they, by their own strength, dwell in safety. This is, in fact, the very same pride which is behind the kingdom of Antichrist, anticipated in God's rebuke to the king of Tyre. Let me just briefly mention this. In chapter, Ezekiel, in chapter 28 of Ezekiel, the prophet says this. Now, there's so much here. I'm just going to make some brief mentions. "'Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, "'Thus says the Lord God, "'Because your heart is lifted up "'and you have said, I am a God, "'I sit in the seat of God's "'in the heart of the seas, "'yet you are a man and not God, "'although you make your heart "'like the heart of God. "'Behold, you are wiser than Daniel, "'and there is no secret "'that is a match for you.' by your wisdom and understanding you have acquired riches for yourself and you've acquired gold and silver for your treasuries by your great wisdom by your trade you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches therefore the lord says the lord god because you have made your heart like the heart of god behold i will bring strangers among you and he talks about the judgment that is to come what is the point of all of that just speaking of the tendency of man, it is to say this. When a nation and when a people become secure in its safety and when they trust in their own riches, that is when a nation is ripe for judgment. That is when a nation is ripe to fall. And we can certainly see this in our own nation as well. Long have we lived on our laurels of the past, long if we taken confidence in our strength and our military might and our ability to produce wealth. When we have confidence in those things, that is a nation that is ready to fall. That is ready, a nation that is ready to become a victim of its own success. However, that's also true of God's people, isn't it? That's also true of God's people. And again, I'm just making this point very broadly. But let me point you to just a couple of passages that act as a reminder. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, you remember the context of Deuteronomy? Moses is addressing a people before they're to enter the land of Canaan. He is reminding them of the covenant of God, Deuteronomy, a second giving of the law. That's why the book got its name. He's reminding them of the law. He's reminding them of the covenant. He's reminding them of their privilege before all of the nations of the world to be the people of God. A people among whom God dwells at that time in the tabernacle. And he's reminding them that you're going to enter into a land, a land that was promised to you by God. And when you enter into this land, you're going to enter into a place of abundance. You're going to have houses that you did not build. You're going to have fields that you did not plant. And yet you're going to reap the benefit and the fruit of all of these things. In other words, God's going to bring you into a place where you are going to be blessed. And he is going to give you this blessing. But... That reminder comes with a warning. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 10, he says this, When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Verse 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. By not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, This is language of abundance. And then he says this in verse 14. Your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. Who led you through the wilderness, he goes on, that he might humble you. But otherwise you might say in your heart in verse 17, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And then he goes on and warns them that this pride, this self-sufficiency, The sense of self-trust is going to lead to your destruction and is going to lead to the judgment of God. You are a people that have been blessed by God, but don't let that blessing turn into your greatest enemy to cause you to forget God. What is the very beginning of the gospel? Is that we are under condemnation, that we are helpless, and that we need to turn to God for grace, that we need to turn to Christ for grace, for forgiveness, for everything. We exchange our life for His. And as soon as we no longer feel that great need and dependence, there is a tendency to usurp The position of God in our hearts. Who needs God? We've got everything on our own. And you say, well, that doesn't happen to the righteous. Let me remind you. David, at the very peak of his kingdom at the very peak of his rule, at the very peak of his military victories, at the very peak of the treasures that he had brought in for the very building of the temple of God that his son would do, at the very peak of his honor among all of the nations and among his people, what happened? He fell. He fell. He became proud. He no longer guarded his heart He no longer watched over the encroachment of sin and of lust. And he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He committed murder by putting her husband Uriah to death. And he brought reproach upon the name of Christ. And he brought misery throughout the rest of his life. Though he was restored to God and had spiritual joy, he had trouble and conflict from that day on. Why? Because it had become easy. He no longer was fighting for his position as a king. He was no longer fighting against the attack and the threat of Saul, which kept him dependent on the Lord. He had become dependent upon himself. He became at ease, and David fell. What about Solomon, his son? He felt deeply at the beginning of his kingship that he needed the grace of God. Ask anything you want, what do you want? I'm but a child. I don't have the ability or the wisdom to lead this great people of you. That's what I asked from you is wisdom. And God said that was a good thing to ask. And because you asked it humbly, I'm going to give you both that and far more riches and wealth and honor. Things you didn't even ask for. And so Solomon took all of those things and he enjoyed them. And he built up great wealth, he pursued every pleasure, and what happened? He loved many wives, many foreign wives, and he led his heart away from God. And Solomon even went to sacrifice to these false idols, and God said, because of that, the kingdom is going to be split. It's going to be split. I'm going to keep part of it, because I'm faithful to my covenant, but I'm going to take it away. And all of this good and all of this blessing is going to come to nothing. It's going to come to nothing. Why? Because your heart was proud. You were lifted up. Again, what is the great principle? That ease and wealth and comfort are one of the greatest threats to spiritual thriving and spiritual reality. The lesson is then that we need to accept affliction. We need to be on guard when we lack it. And we see this not only in terms of the Bigger picture of the covenant people of God, but we see it in our own lives. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 119. Just listen. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The most mature, the most wise, and the most humble Christians are often those who have displayed the greatest degree of obedient faith in the greatest amount of suffering and affliction. The greatest amount of suffering and affliction, responded to with the greatest amount of obedient faith, is what produces Christian maturity. It's what proves spiritual reality. Untested faith has a very loose foundation for the assurance of maturity and security. It is a tested faith. It is a tested faith that produces discernment, that produces confidence. We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul, and I'm just going to make mention of it. For time's sake, in 2 Corinthians 12, Even the great Apostle Paul, even the great Apostle Paul has seen such glories, said that he had a thorn in his side. He had affliction. He had something that brought him so low. And as a matter of fact, it brought him so low, you remember that three times he asked of God that it could be removed from him. And what is the response of the risen Christ? My strength is perfected in weakness. And in fact, Paul identifies the fact that this weakness that he was made to feel, this affliction that had come to him by the hand of God, was in fact to keep him from pride. Why? Because if he didn't have it, even the great apostle Paul would have become proud in his accomplishments and would have been susceptible to sin. He needed affliction to keep him humble. He needed affliction to remind him that his strength was in the Lord and in Christ alone. He needed affliction. He needed a thorn in the side to keep him dependent on the gospel and faithful to Christ. We see this in the Church of America. It's only on a bed of the comfort and ease and abundance that we have that we could come up with the kind of theology that would say that God's greatest purpose is health, wealth, and prosperity. It's only in a uh, environment of such ease that we could come up with the kind of gospel that doesn't require repentance and obedience toward Christ. It's only in such comfort and ease in the gospel that we could come up with silly movements like church growth movements and design the very gathering of God's people for unbelievers to not offend them and then cause them to get involved with church things and say they're saved. It's only in a place of such ease and abundance that we could come up with things like progressive Christianity and all of the silly things that come to the church of God here that make it look foolish even before a watching world. It's only in such ease that we could have such laxity towards the holiness of God and accept the kind of sin and the things that God hates into the church with the the ideas of sexual morality adopted more from the world than from the word of God. It's only in a place of ease and abundance that these things can come. Because when there's persecution, when we're made to feel our weakness, then we're made more dependent on Christ, we're made more dependent on the truth, and we are made more holy, we are made more faithful. We are made more like our Savior, who through learned obedience through the things He suffered. Through the things He suffered and therefore became for us a perfect mediator and a perfect high priest. And so this is the message of Christ. This is a general introduction to church. And he's, you have much ease, you have much wealth, you have much prosperity. You proclaim the name of Christ. But what you don't have is my life and my salvation. What you don't have is the reality of me in you. The world may praise you, but I condemn you. The world may sing your laurels as a faithful church, but I'm going to declare to you that you are dead and you are empty, and that is this message to this church. And in many ways, this situation at Sardis then is a good introduction to baptism, because the very idea of baptism, as I mentioned earlier, and of salvation, is to come to the end of yourself. That's the beginning of the gospel. When you realize how great and glorious is the infinite God who created all things by the word of his power and sustains it by that same word and by that same power. When a God who is so holy, he has eyes that he cannot approve of wickedness and will condemn the very world, even as he did in the flood and even as he will in the future, and yet condescended according to his eternal purpose and for his own glory to come in the form of the man in the person of Jesus Christ, to come in the pre- uh, presentation of weakness of the flesh and to give himself up as an atoning sacrifice for the sin of his people and then display his glorious power by defeating death and Rising from the dead and ascending to the Father, from which He will return in power and glory to establish His kingdom. And baptism is a recognition of all of those things and says that I am helpless, I am worthless of myself, I deserve only condemnation, but I have looked to Christ and I have trusted in Christ. And everything that I need and everything that I want to be like and everything that I put my faith in, at the very foundation of my identity as a person, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have died to myself. And I find life in him. I have rejected what the world offers to gain what God has provided in Christ. And that is the message of baptism. And that is the message that we will hear in just a few moments. So let me pray. And then John will come up as we uh, get ready to hear the testimony of James. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the warnings that you give us. The warning themselves are an expression of your love. The warnings themselves are an expression of your care for us. They are the warnings that we are to receive, to be watchful over our own souls, even as you told the disciples as they were asleep the night of your betrayal. You said watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. And oh Lord, even though we know these truths, how often we fall into temptation, even we who know you. How often we stumble and struggle along the way, but it is you letting us taste our own weakness that keeps us always dependent upon Christ. Always looking to Jesus as our only hope and our only Savior. Always looking to our risen Lord as our salvation and our righteousness. And always longing in our hearts to be with you forever and ever. Will Sin will be no more and it will be nothing but the fullest expression of love and gratitude and joy in your presence forever. Lord, help us to comprehend these things and help us to live in light of them and give lives to you that are worthy of the salvation we've received. And Lord, as we hear this testimony, may we who know you be encouraged and may any here who do not know you be brought to see the wonder and the glory of salvation in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.